today on News Hub Nation. Environment Minister David Parker on whether our kids will ever get clean rivers. Is taxpayer-funded koha for the mongrel mob a sackable offence? Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt defends his role. Labour free spirit Louisa Wall joins us live. And digital editor Finn Hogan on who's up, who's down in politics online. I'm Simon Shepherd. And I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to News Hub Nation. Konga Pito Pito Korero Ite Fare Paremata in political news this week. Surgeries are being postponed and hospital wards are at capacity as respiratory virus RSV hits the nation's babies. There's more pressure on a health workforce already struggling to keep up with demand, and now nurses are planning further strike action. COVID's Delta variant has been confirmed on the vessel off the Taranaki coast. The same variant is in New South Wales and Queensland, where the travel bubble pause has been extended. Meanwhile, MedSafe has approved the Janssen vaccine as a backup to the Pfizer jab. And still no government commitment to help children of skilled migrants stuck in limbo while their families' residency applications are processed. Hundreds are unable to work or study, some telling NewsHub it's causing depression and anxiety. The immigration ministers asked for advice on the issue. And a COVID-19 press conference in Parliament was delayed on Friday when reporters came face-to-face -face with Labour MP Sarah Pallett and her bridal party. Chris Hipkins stepped aside to allow his colleague, the blushing bride, to walk down the aisle to get married in the Legislative Council chamber. Cleaning up waterways and reducing agricultural pollution, two challenges this government is finding quite tricky. Proposed rules for both have been delayed, sparking accusations the government is kowtowing to farmers. The minister responsible is David Parker. I spoke to him earlier and began by asking what he thought of new winter grazing footage released by Animal Rights Group, SAFE. All right, Minister, let's start with winter grazing rules. First off, I want to uh, show you this footage supplied by Animal Rights Group, SAFE, to News Hub reporter Alexa Cook. Uh, and it shows... As you can see, uh, cows on wetland, seemingly flat. Now, is this a, an acceptable example of winter grazing? Uh, it's hard to tell from that. Um, obviously, when you have rain on flat land, it does pond. Uh, but we know that winter grazing in Southland, for example, we've got a problem with both the quantity of it and the quality of it. Right. Um, so, because this is another farm, it looks like, where the, the cows are s s yeah, well, up on the hill there. Yeah, well, I, and there's a lot of runoff there. And there's a lot there, of water. There is, and you can see how that can ruin a river. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, so, is this you, what the winter grazing rules are supposed to rule out? Uh, well, it, yes, yeah, they are. Mm. You know, that, that, that's pretty obvious that there's a loss of a lot of sediment on that occasion. Okay. And look, the, the difference here between sloping ground and flat ground is incredible. Even on flat ground, you can lose tens of thousands of tonnes of soil to adjacent waterways per annum. All right. And if it's sloping, it can be five times as bad. Okay, so given that, why are the winter grazing rules that you propose being pushed back till next year? Uh, well, there, there were two reasons for that. Uh, firstly, the winter grazing rule as to the replanting date mm -hmm. uh, was said to be uh, too rigid. Uh, we chose a date that was later for Southland of the 1st of November, but right. even some years you can't plant new grass seed by the 1st of November. So, And that was on the advice or pressure from farmers to have that done? Uh, it was on advice from my own officials as well as from regional councils. And yeah. so the, the farming sector came to us and said, look, we're going to transition to farm plans anyway. Why don't we bring forward an intensive winter grazing module for farm plans? Yeah. Get the industry to push it really hard. They gave us an undertaking that they would try to both reduce quantity and improve quality of winter grazing. And so we've taken them at their word and we're monitoring it this winter. From the outside, it looks like you've given into pressure from farmers. No. 
no. You know, I, no, I, and I never will, to be perfectly honest. I know that I take a lot of rubbish about this yeah. from, from some splinter groups, but all I'm trying to do is reduce pollution. I'm not trying to stop it. Right. Uh, and I think that most New Zealanders are with me because so, they don't like their rivers and estuaries filling up with mud. Absolutely. So will we see that kind of footage, you know, next year? Well, the flattest ground always ponds when you graze it in winter intensively, mm. and there's no avoiding that. What you can do is make sure that cattle are moved off it if the mud gets deep, okay. uh, and you must prohibit it on sloping land. So I want less winter grazing, and the winter grazing that we've got left, I want to be of a better quality. Right, so we'll still be winter grazing, but you hope it's better quality. Isn't this a bit of a blow to our clean green image that we still have it, these it, kinds of it, pictures? It, it, it absolutely is, and I think that's one of the reasons why there are lots of farmers that are motivated to do better, even if there are a few recalcitrants that we're having to drag along. Okay. A year ago, let's talk about water quality, another mm. complex area, but a year ago you released your package to clean up rivers and lakes, mm. but it was missing one crucial thing, which is a maximum allowable nitrate level. Too much nitrate is, is, kills river health, basically. Mm. So on this program you said it would take a year to fix that? Have you? Have you said it? That's not quite what I said. I said we'd review it after a year. Can OK. I, you know, the two biggest problems with river and estuaries and lakes and things are sediment and excessive nutrients. On yep. the excessive nutrients, the biggest problem in New Zealand is nitrates. There are That's two right. So why not set a maximum nitrate level? Well, the suggestion is that we should have a maximum nitrate level of one milligram per... Um, per litre. That's per, right. Per litre. Um, we already have an effective limit of lower that for every gravel bottom river in the country. Mm. And one of my concerns is if you set a limit of one, that will be seen by some in the sector as being a target and that they should be able to bring up rivers that are below one to that one. We know that if you have even a limit of one in a gravel bottom river, you have the overgrowth of periphyte and slime. Slime, yes, slime. that's right. So we've already got rules that prevent that. So the debate now is essentially about muddy bottom rivers and whether you should have a din of one, yeah. with some exceptions, or whether we... Or whether and we should debate. So, I mean, that was a debate that you couldn't agree on, or the scientific, technically, uh, technical advisory group couldn't agree on a year ago. Yeah. Where is it now? Are you dropping that? Uh, no, we've said that we'll reconsider it this year, and we are. That involves consideration as to whether we, you know, has the science changed? Mm -hmm. what's, what's the effect of the package that we've already got? What's the environmental benefit of a tougher sure. limit on DIN? And, and all those questions were cost? being asked last year. It's yeah. been a year on. Has there been no progress made on this? No, that's, no, it's not. We're working those issues through, but we haven't landed it yet. You still haven't landed it. Has the science you know, changed? You know, that, you know that, that sounds a very critical way you ask that question. This is really difficult stuff. OK. And, and, uh, and, and we are making a difference. I phoned the head freshwater commissioner. This is a new post that we legislated for last year. He's a very experienced environment court judge, uh, former professor of planning as well. And I said to him, Peter Skelton, Peter, is this going to work? And he says, this is going to make a difference. So I, 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 think, I think, you know, it's hard, <laughs> but I think we're doing the right things. OK, just quickly on this. I mean, the, the, the Science and Technical Advisory Group I've been provided with quotes would say that the inclusion of this kind of thing, a DIN, as it's mm. known, mm. Um, is recommended because it will impact both the structure and functioning of healthy ecosystems. Mm. Yes, that's correct. So there will be a DIN because farmers don't like it. Uh, well, th there is already a DIN, in effect, for all gravel bottom rivers in New Zealand. That's why I, I, I drive this point home, because there is already a lower... Th in fact, this week, the, the scientists, a group of scientists, said it shouldn't be one for gravel bottom rivers, it should be 0.6. Yeah, OK. Well, that's 
But for other rivers, it should be one at, one at the maximum. Well, uh, no, there are, there are, it's not quite that simple because there are some uh, muddy bottom rivers where some scientists say that you need an exception because the din should be higher than one. OK. Uh, this, okay. It's, it, We've also got a limit on the yeah. amount of fertiliser per hectare that can yeah. be applied, which used to be some farmers were using over 300 kilograms per hectare per annum. We've limited that to 190. That also has a benefit on nutrient losses. Well, are you running out of time as, as a government? I mean, are you risking... You've been in for four years, you're in your second term. I know these are complex things, but you oh, need, you've hey, got a certain time frame to get this hey, done, haven't hey, you? The, the, the do you think the opposition would do it? Uh, no, I don't think they'd well, do it. Well, there you go, so it's on you. Yeah, no, it, it is on me. Uh, but we, you know, we've we've changed the RMA. We've required council plans to be vastly different, and we've got uh, standards around uh, intensive winter grazing that didn't used to apply. Now, if if we have poor practice uh, in uh, uh, in Southland and they're not on the road to recovery, we've made it clear that that regulation that sits behind that will actually return. Okay, let's let's move on to another area that you're responsible yeah. for, and that's plastics. You've announced a, yeah. uh, uh, that you're phasing out a number three plastic, basically PVC, yes, and some other plastics. They're used for food and beverage, yeah. Yeah. but those PVC plastics are used in a much broader area, and there's yeah. concern within the plastics industry that you're not being ambitious enough there. <laughs> oh, it's hard to please everyone, isn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, look, well, we, look, look, what have we done? We actually banned single-use plastic bags. There's a billion... two years ago, yep. Yeah, OK, two years ago, and since then we've stopped a billion plastic bags going into landfills. Mm. Substantial progress. We've got other plastics that, if they get mixed up in the recycling of other plastics, ruin the recycled plastics, so we're yeah. banning them. We're banning various other single-use uh, items like drink stirrers and plastic cutlery and yep. you know, those pesky plastic stickers. Yeah, so we're, 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 doing, we're doing a lot. Should more be done? Yes, okay. it should be. So what's the next step? Uh, well, I, I personally think that we need to update the Waste Management Act we're doing and create a process so that annually we're knocking out the next thing that ought not to be in the, in the waste stream because it's not necessary and it causes problems. We're considering container deposit legislation. We've got a waste minimisation strategy for all plastics and one of the things that will eventually be considered if you do move to container deposits, you can have different deposits on different materials so as to encourage right. people so to so if I give a high-value plastic back, I'll get more money back or something like that. Or if you're the producer of it, you, you might have to you know, pay more for recycling than you would if, if it was a clear plastic. There's a lot of confusion about plastic numbers, isn't there? I mean, do you know which, out of the seven numbers, do you know which are the good ones? Well, if, if, well I, I sort of do. Yeah. Uh, but I would um, hope you do. It's environment But minister. you sort of need your magnifying glass out to tell. Yeah. So one of the things we're trying to do is to chunk down to fewer grades of plastic, move to a different labelling system that's easier for people to follow. Yep. We also need Are you to going to make it uniform nationally because it's so different council to council? Yeah, council. we're going to make it uniform nationally. We're also working with industry to help them manage out the problem plastics so that they're actually not in what we buy from the supermarket. OK, I want to ask about your other portfolio, revenue, right? So it's been in the spotlight because of the fee bait and utes. Mm. What is the situation with double cab utes? What has Inland Revenue told you? Do they get a tax break or do they not? They've never been accepted as a class of vehicles. A lot of people uh, that use twin cab utes have never been caught by the regime because they legitimately take their ute home at night full of, full of tools, for example. So this isn't a debate about tradies. Mm. Um, but uh, there has been a debate has, about the people who don't use it for taking home there, tools. There has been a misapprehension amongst some people. It's been common common view that twin cab utes are always, always exempt from fringe benefit tax. That's never been the case legally. OK, so, but they've proliferated on that assumption, haven't they? 
Uh, well, I don't know. No, actually, I don't think that is the main reason. I actually think most people that buy twin cab use, use them, buy them because they find them convenient and they like to use them. Right. I don't think it's driven by tax primarily. Okay, so this this issue that inland revenue isn't chasing people for not paying the fringe benefit tax for the double cab utes, it's not an well, issue? Well, the, the decisions that uh, inland revenue make about who they chase for tax avoidance are made by them, not me. Mm. Uh, and they tell me that there's much other areas that are more profitable for them to chase down, which is why they're not chasing down FBT on twin can views. I have one more question for you uh, in terms of your environment portfolio. Yeah. The UK, the US and uh, the EU are looking at right to repair legislation. Mm. So, you know, if you've got a washing machine, the yeah. manufacturer has to have those mm. parts so you can, you can do that. Is that something that you'd be interested in? Yeah, in fact, I met with a consumer organisation this week, which is uh, something that they're, they're keen on too. Yeah. And I, I'm interested in that and we, we will be considering that as part of our review of the waste management, waste... And what's the time frame for that? Uh, again, uh, we're expecting to make cabinet decisions on that later this year. But I'm, I'm personally frustrated. I had a fridge that broke down recently, couldn't get a part. When I eventually tracked down a part, couldn't get someone to repair it. Right. After five weeks of running a chilli bin in the fridge, I gave up, <laughs> chucked out what was a perfectly good fridge. It was such a waste. All right, so that, those rules are definitely coming in, according to you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm definitely interested in them, but okay. the Cabinet decision's not mine. All right. Um, Minister for Many Things, David Parker, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. And News Hub's Alexa Cook will have more exclusive details on that winter grazing footage we showed you on News Hub Live at 6. If you've got a news tip, get in touch. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or you can email us at nation at tv3.co.nz. If I can know, still to come, we dissect the week's political news with our panel. But first, National wants him to resign. Act wants his office abolished entirely. It's the embattled Human Rights Commissioner. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back. Since the Human Rights Commissioner gave a $200 koha courtesy of the taxpayer to the mongrel mob kingdom Waikato chapter, National has called for his resignation. An act went even further. It wants his entire office to be abolished. I spoke to him earlier to ask why he did it. Can I just back up a little bit and explain briefly what the Human Rights Commission seeks to do? Because that provides a context for me going to Kirikiriroa, to the Hui and the Koha and so forth. So really briefly, look, the, the Human Rights Commission established by the Human Rights Act, our business is human rights, all human rights for everybody. That is the human rights which are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's really important is that we're, we're not just uh, about human rights for lawyers going to court, it's human rights for uh, public officials to take into account when they're drafting their policies and so forth and so on. So we are interested in what's happening in the Beehive and Lambton Key, uh, but not just uh, for lawyers, it's mm -hmm. for public, public officials as well. Totally. Inclusivity is part of is, is part of your remit, right? You want to bring it, it, people in, so you want to have these conversations. But we, why we, did we you do. give two hundred dollars of taxpayer money to the mongrel well, mob? Look, as I as I was about about to to say that what we're keen to do is to reach beyond the Beehive and Lambton Key to different communities to show how human rights can help uh, deal with difficult uh, issues. And that means that we have to think about what human rights means. Now, human rights isn't just about entitlements. It's also about building good relationships across communities, between communities, with far now and so forth and so on. It's about relationships. It's also about responsibilities. Everyone has not only human rights, but human responsibilities. That's what we're arguing. And also, there are rights. So, though, what I 
call the three R's, uh, are really, really important. Now, those three R's, talking about relationships, responsibilities, and rights, those were the things that led me to can, attending the HUI them. on the 1st of May. For sure. We can see them there on your on your shirt. Madame Davidson, yes, the and, Greens co-leader, she was at the same HUI, Mr Hunt, and she didn't pay a koha because it wasn't on a marae. Why didn't you follow her example? Yeah, first of all, can I just say that the, the, the sweatshirt here uh, is not paid for by the taxpayer. Um, it's Thanks it's paid out of my It's paid out let's of my own pocket. The, let's look, stick to the I, amount I of money took, that was look, paid I, by the taxpayer. I took, I took uh, advice, and I was advised that the appropriate thing to do is to be respectful of, of tikanga, uh, Maori protocol. Personally, how look, did it sit it, with you? Just, just per, Can I just put to you something that RNZ journalist hmm. Mediana Johnson said to Willie Jackson this week? Why would hmm. you uphold tikanga for a group that don't up uphold tikanga? Quote, they harm our people, they pump meth, they beat the women. So personally, are yeah. you comfortable giving them $200 of look. someone else's cash? Yeah, look, to be absolutely clear, in case there's any misunderstanding anywhere, I abhor violent, criminal, drug-peddling gangs, wherever they come from, wherever they come from. The question is, how do we deal with that issue? Now, one deal, one, one way of dealing with it is by looking at uh, a very narrow lens of criminality. And has that worked? No, it hasn't. There's another way of looking at this challenge that you're I don't referring think, I to. Don't, I, don't, I, I genuinely don't think anyone is contesting the fact that you are having these conversations. I think they're critically important. But did you consider just paying for this one yourself, maybe, given it is so contentious? No, no I was there on behalf of the Human Rights Commission. How much, coha, but how much do we pay? Coha, how much do the, the taxpayer the coha, pay you? The COHA the coha was from the Human Rights Commission. Um, on the flip side, Debbie Ngāriwipaka, the Māori Party co-leader, has come in to bat for you, backing up a lot of those points that you've just made. She said that your critics are race-baiting. Do you agree that your critics on this are race-baiting? Uh, I'm not going to enter that. Look, the, this issue, of course it has an ethnic and cultural dimension to it. Of course it has. And, you know, when I listened, I was there to listen and learn and also to have some challenging conversations. And what did I hear? I heard about poverty. I heard about discrimination. I heard about <clears throat> dislocation. I heard about a sense of powerlessness. Look, I'm not naive. I understand how these gangs, uh, that, that the history that these gangs have. I understand that. But one has to engage. One has to... I favour I favor social inclusion, not exclusion. Okay. I don't favour demonisation. I don't favour dissing people's culture. Uh, okay. and, and, I, I, and I think we should be respectful. Yep, I, I, I agree we should be respectful. The, the government's proposal on hate speech, do you think that it strikes the right balance or do you think perhaps it could be clearer or tighter given that the bar is set so low for language which is just insulting? Yeah, this is a terribly important issue, a really polarising issue. Um, for a long time now, the Human Rights Commission has been saying, let's have a respectful, inclusive uh, and, uh, and, and calm discussion about these, these matters. We are, we are finalising our submission to the government just now. Uh, it'll be published in a few weeks' time during the period of consultation. If I could just, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I could bring you back to the question, do you think it needs to be tighter? Do you think that insulting is too low a bar? Um, well, look, wait for our submission to come out on that. The central question when debating hate speech is where to draw the line, and we've been trying to work out um, at News Hub Nation where that line is. If someone says that all gay people are going to hell, as Israel Folau did, is that hate speech? 
Look, that's going to be a matter for the judges to decide. Yes or Look, no, in your opinion, no, 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 no. The legislation has to set out the parameters, the principles, has to define the, the thresholds, has to define, define the groups, various principles have to be established, and then really difficult, what the literature calls wicked problems, really difficult problems will have to be adjudicated by the judges. One of the most um, visible and invisible human rights abuses in the world right now is what's going on in Xinjiang province in China. Do you believe that genocide is going on there against Uyghur Muslims? If you, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. However, I have to say this. The hu I'm empowered under the Human Rights Act to do my best to promote uh, and, and protect human rights in Aotearoa. It's not possible for me to talk about Okay, so you don't, you uh, don't have a view on Xinjiang? Of, of course I have a personal view. In my present position as Chief Human Rights Commissioner, it's not within my mandate to right. lawfully make comments in that area. Let's move back to New Zealand then. Housing, adequate housing is a fundamental human right. Do you think emergency motel adequate housing? Well, a, a good place to start is to look at the recent recommendations and report that has come out of the United Nations by an independent expert on the right to housing. And have a look at what she says. She talks I about housing is, a, housing, housing is a human <laughs> Sorry, rights Ms. crisis. Dan, with respect, okay. do you okay. think emergency motels are adequate housing? What I invite you to do is wait for the launch in a couple of weeks' time on our framework guidelines on the right to a decent home in Aotearoa. When those public publications, those guidelines are launched, uh, probably in the first week of August, I'd be very happy to discuss it yeah, further with you. I look forward to it. There is a lot of waiting going on at the back of these questions. There are about 24,000 people on the social housing wait list. That's 24,000 people who don't have access to adequate housing. So is the government breaching the rights of 24,000 vulnerable New Zealanders? Well, as I said, Tova, let me come back with the framework guidelines. We'll you talk about the issues when you've, got, when you've got them when you've got them in front of you. We look I forward look to forward reading to it. it. What about I prisoner rights? Amelia Wade's story about an inmate who was self-harming had pepper spray used on him three times. A human rights lawyer says that cell buster pepper spray could be a weapon of torture and in breach of the International Convention Against Torture. Do you agree? I do agree. I do agree. That we have um, uh, we have national preventive uh, mechanisms established uh, in our terror to ensure these things don't happen, or if they do happen, they are exposed. Uh, I'm the chair of the committee that looks at those things, and and uh, it's really important that all measures are taken to ensure there is not torture, inhuman or degrading treatment. So, so we in should abolish the detention. use of that cell buster pepper spray in prisons. Um, I think that I would have to take expert advice on the medical, uh, the medical implications for it, but I'm deeply worried about the use of excessive uh, force in restraint and social inclusion. Part of the broader problem that you don't, and you and your commission, you just don't have any teeth. You can't do anything about any of these things, really, that we've talked about. Yeah, the, look, uh, Parliament, in its infinite wisdom, has given us certain limited powers. I have to make the best of those powers. Uh, I think that it would be appropriate for the powers to be, uh, to be revisited. And do you think today, in this interview, we haven't really been able to answer many of my questions you've kind of kicked to touch, do you think that maybe you've vindicated the ACT Party and the National Party who say you should go, or say that your role should even be abolished?
Well, you know, I think it's a little bit unfair and unkind. Look, I have indicated to you that we're publishing in a few weeks' time some original uh, groundbreaking framework guidelines on the right to a decent home in Aotearoa. In a few weeks' time, we are publishing our position in relation to harmful speech or hate speech. These matters have taken a lot of time of preparation, and we're going to launch them at the appropriate time. I'll get you on the blower in a few weeks' time. Thank you very much That'll for your time today, Paul Hunt. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. Paul Hunt there. Labour MP Louisa Wall has hit the headlines twice this week, first suggesting her own government should be doing more to stop China's human rights abuses, and then second accepting a National Party speaking slot on mental health when her own party refused to give her one. She joins me now. Tēnā Louisa. Thank you very much for joining us. Kia ora, Tava. So those first headlines you made, you accused China of slavery and, and August, uh, organ harvesting. Quote, forced organ harvesting is occurring to service a global market where people are wanting hearts, lungs, eyes and skin. Why was it important to you to get that out there? Um, it's incredibly important uh, from the position of being uh, New Zealand's representative with Simon O'Connor on the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Um, I became involved because of what was happening in Hong Kong, to be honest. Uh, I think the erosion of democracy is something that we all should um, be wary of because, uh, as we've seen uh, with um, what's happening with Fulongong practitioners, with Tibetans and latterly uh, Uyghur uh, human beings, mm. uh, they are being targeted and labelled as prisoners of conscience. But I think we should understand what that means within China's regime. It actually does mean slavery. It means camps. They call them in, in education camps. Other people would see them as prisons. And it has seen uh, blood tests taken, um, x-rays, a database of organs that services a $1 billion global market. And, and, and you believe there is a genocide going on in Xinjiang province? I think the world um, is coming to a conclusion about genocide having happening in Xinjiang. And we want the UN through the Human Rights Council and Michelle Bachelet particularly to be able to do her job. And China has not cooperated. They will not let people in. So in lieu of that, you've had um, entities such as the China Tribunal, chaired by Sir Geoffrey Nice, who has worked in the International Criminal Court, um, here from uh, not only refugees and survivors of these camps, but um, academics, from journalists and from clinicians. So one of his co-sponsors of the process in the UK is Professor Martin Elliott. He's the head of uh, ca uh, paediatric cardiology because they need the clinical support to be able to perform these transplants, and, obviously. And are you, Lewis Wall, are you out there, I mean, you're good friends with the Foreign Minister, Naya Mahuta, but are you out there saying what perhaps she can't because perhaps she's putting economics ahead of humanity? No, I think both Nanaya and the Prime Minister and our government are doing everything that they can do. They're not and going they're doing... as far as you are, though. Possibly not, because they have um, a diplomatic process and they're engaging country um, and government leader um, to government leader. I'm doing it as a member of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. You who are still has... a Labour MP, though, as I well, am... and Jacinda Ardern's Oh, oh absolutely. Um, but the rationale for me belonging to these groups is about my practice. People would not dispute that I'm a human rights champion practitioner. I have privy to information um, that has enabled me to have these informed discussions and I believe New Zealanders deserve to know what's happening uh, in those camps or in those prisons. But uh, what I do want to be clear about is our government is absolutely committed to addressing modern slavery. Did the Prime Minister know that your volley against China was coming? Uh, 
Um, my interview with Guy and Espinner happened in January. Um, obviously, from the, the depth of the interviews and the, and the number of interviews, um, you can see it took a long time to get to a place mm. where they've released did it the as Prime a... Minister know? Co um, the minister's office did, mm -hmm. and I contacted um, uh, the office and let them know I was giving the interview. The fact that it's broken six months later and everyone thinks I did it last week, I think, mm. is problematic. Did, did more headlines on Thursday as well. You accepted a speaking slot from National MP Shane Redetti on mental health when your own party wouldn't give you a slot. Why, why didn't Labour let you speak? So we have our internal processes and through determination they said ministers should lead this debate and in some ways it's really important that our ministers lead the debate because they're the ones in a position You're to do also a founding member of the cross-party mental health group, yes. you worked hard on the suicide report that's under discussion so you seem pretty relevant to that debate as well. Why did Labour silence you? Well, that's a question for um, the whips. I'm not going to talk about the fact that um, I didn't have one. What I want to talk about is the Zero Suicide Aotearoa report, and I want to take the opportunity to thank particularly um, Dr Shane Rissi. Mm. And, and therein lies the context of how this group was created. It was a recommendation of Hiara Oranga. Yeah. In the previous parliament, I was the chair of the health committee. Mm -hmm. Dr Rissi was my deputy. And we Matt can recommend Ducey. that everyone go and watch that debate online because yes. that, it was it was really yes. very moving and, and significant. But do you think, I'm just interested in what was going on behind the scenes, do you think that you were being punished by the Labour Party for speaking out on China? I think that the context had changed and the reason I wanted to highlight the fact I was chair of the Health Committee was because that's how Jenny Marcroft became a member of the cross-party group and Matt Ducey. I'm no longer the chair of the Health Committee. Obviously I'm still involved and I'm incredibly passionate about suicide. Um, at the end of the day, this should be about our report. I mean, this is an opportunity for Parliament uh, yeah. to, to come together on an incredibly, you know... 100%. 100%. But it's also important that MPs like you who have a voice are able to speak out and not be silenced by their parties. And I also wonder, I mean, you have... You're a seriously impressive MP. You gave us marriage equality. You have more experience than more than half of those in Cabinet. Why on earth aren't you a minister? That's not my decision, and you have to ask the person who's, who makes is those decisions. Is that gutting, though? Like, should you be a minister? What I am grateful for is the privilege that I have and the opportunities that I do have, I make the most of them. So I sit on the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Select Committee, incredibly grateful and 100% focused on supporting um, my ministers, so Nanaya, Damien O'Connor, Penny Henare. I'm incredibly um, focused on my IPAC role, I'm also the IPU rep. So having, having to find extracurriculars because you're not a minister, we have to leave it there, I'm afraid, Lewis Wall. Um, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Labour MP Lewis Wall should be Minister Lewis Wall. Um, thank you very much. Kia ora. Thank you, Tata. Kia ora. Up next, our panel with their analysis of the week in politics, plus digital editor Finn Hogan on who's up, who's down and who's splashing the cash online. Welcome back. Well, the election might be behind us, but of course MPs are already eyeing 2023. So this week we're checking in with our digital editor, Finn Hogan, to see who's up, who's down and who's pulling ahead on social media. I started by asking him who's the success story so far this year. As it was in the election, so it has become on Facebook. David Seymour is playing an outsized role. He's posting pretty much twice as much as the Prime Minister, who, as we know, is extremely online. But importantly, he's also pulling ahead of Judith Collins and pretty much 
every metric that we can measure here, whether that be follower growth or video views. And what that tells us is that he's pushing really hard to try and get into that de facto opposition leader lane. And at least on Facebook, he's having some success. But what's driving it? Why is David so appealing now? Well, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that, right? I mean, for one, him and the Act Party page are um, just making more content, which of course leads to more engagement. But I think importantly, they're leaning really hard into those red meat conservative issues. Obviously, free speech is the big one right now. But because they're a minor party, they don't have to moderate their tone as much as they would were they a major party. So they're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Divisive content like this kind of stuff really gets rewarded by the Facebook algorithm. All right, so he's playing the game well? Well, yes, he is playing the game well, but he's also splashing the cash at it. He's spent about $7,000 in Facebook advertising over the past week, and that compares to zero for National and for Labour. So what that tells us is that ACT are really willing to pony up the cash to take advantage of a weakened National. And what about National? Are they falling by the wayside? Well, they are a little bit, but if you compare them directly to Labour, they're actually doing quite well. And that's not a sentence a lot of people have said over the last 12 months. If you look at key metrics, they're actually keeping steady or even pulling ahead of Labour. And so what that says, if the Nats weren't having so many of their own internal issues, they could really capitalise and actually pull ahead in this space. But because of all their issues, they're not quite able to. So has National changed tact since the election? Well, not really, and if anything, they're actually using some old ideas. This is a trick uh, pioneered by Boris Johnson and the Brexit boys. It's where you use intentionally terrible fonts like Comic Sans in your posts and then let snarky journalists and pundits retweet it, mocking you, but that, of course, just extends your reach for free. Now, of course, it's not impossible that National are just terrible at choosing fonts, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say this one was tactical. Let's talk about some of the lesser-known MPs. Who's doing well? Well, in terms of the lesser known, I can tell you who is very hungry right now. Erica Stanford, she's up over 200% in terms of engagement compared to her profile last year. And that's very impressive considering she's much more of a backbencher. How did she do this? Well, it's interesting. She's done a very good strategy, which is choose one extremely specific emotive issue. In this case, it's separated migrant families at the border. And she's just coming out with content consistently about that. She's grandstanding in the House, taking that clip from the debating chamber, posting it to her own profile. And Facebook loves this kind of stuff. It loves long-form video content that's extremely emotive. And she's using that to reach hundreds of thousands of people without spending a cent. Which is clever, uh, but in terms of who is the most dominant MP, it's still got to be Jacinda Ardern, is that right? It's always Jacinda Ardern. In terms of the headline numbers in this space, Ardern is completely unassailable. But the only way that I would qualify that is by saying, A, I would assume, I don't know, but I would assume a lot of that engagement comes from overseas fans. So it doesn't actually really affect our domestic politics that much. And B, if you look at the actual weighting of the way people respond to her social media posts, it's actually changed a bit this year. And the number of people responding in an inherently positive way has dropped off. And that does tell you the shine's coming off a little bit. And yes, that is extremely granular and extremely nerdy, but that's what you pay me for, Sam. Uh, look, I respect your nerd credentials. Um, any other honourable mentions? Well, of course, there was only one that it could possibly be. Big shout-out to Chris Pink, who managed to fit Winston Peters, sex maniac, and a very naughty four-letter word into the same tweet, which, if there is any secret source for traction online, it's that. Yeah. <laughs> he did delete it, and he did apologise, though, didn't he? Well, yeah, but that's the great thing about social media, isn't it? You can take it down, but once you've posted it, it exists forever. It's the best of both worlds. You can take it down, make headlines, smile and apologise. But if there's one lesson we know to be true about social media, it's what you do lives forever.
All right, digital editor Finn Hogan, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Digital editor Finn Hogan there. If I Akenai, we'll be back with our political panel. Plus, National MP Simeon Brown and why he'd make a better corrections minister than Kelvin Davis. Welcome back. We're joined now, now by our panel, PR man and former national staffer Ben Thomas, clean water campaigner Marnie Prickett, who advises the government on water policy, and News Hub political reporter Jenna Lynch. Welcome to you all. Let's kick off with the, the intensive uh, winter grazing rules. They were changed and then delayed for a year. David Parker denies it's in response to pressure from the farming community. Marnie, what do you think? I think that it's really important that we differentiate uh, between farming voices. So farming, the farming community isn't just one voice and there's actually a, lo a lot of people in the farming community who are ready to shift away from intensive winter grazing and who want to do that. Mm. Obviously that takes a few seasons to be able to do, to do that effectively. But there has been a lot of pressure on this government from farming lobby, farming um, industry groups to weaken uh, the freshwater reforms. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's going to support farming in the long run. I think that farmers need to be um, working towards the, the outcomes that their communities want for their environment. Um, and, and so I think that there is still a lot of pressure on the government right. from industry groups, yes. Mm. And recognising, um, as Marty says, that there's a diversity of voices within the farming community. Jenna, farmers say that the government is pushing too much onto them. Climate change, RMA reform, biodiversity, water quality, farm plans, are they expecting too much? Well, the government will do well to probably figure out what a farmer is, define what a farmer is. That was the reason they couldn't um, give an exemption on the work use for farmers because they don't actually know <laughs> what a farmer is. Um, but yes and no, that they, they, they have been putting a lot on farmers. Farmers will feel like there is a bit of an onslaught, but these are all issues that have been building for a significant amount of time. And at the same time, those farmers have got some concessions on the winter grazing, mm. on the ETS, on the significant natural areas. So the farmer voice is still being heard at the table they're perhaps just not getting quite as many as concessions as they used right. to. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, Ben, is, is Labor not giving them enough concessions, getting them offside, so this gives you know, room for National to capitalise? Well, you would hope so. <laughs> they would hope so, but it doesn't but seem to be it? showing up in the polls. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of room to move on this in the sense that, you know, National was actually working reasonably closely with the government in the last term on, on these sorts of issues, on climate change. Um, and so, they, you know, as with a lot of these issues, ACT has been able to be a lot more sort of black and white, mm. steer a more consistent line through, even if it's a more unrealistic one, if you ever want to actually govern the country. Um, but it, it has been... You know, like a lot of other areas, tough for National to get cut through there while they're dealing with their own internal problems. On to um, clean water stuff, Money, which is your um, your serious domain. David Parker still not saying whether they're going to put a maximum nitrate level on mm -hmm. for rivers, saying it's really complicated. What do, you, what do you make of that argument? I don't think it's complicated at all. I think that the science is definitely it's robust. There's been a, there's a big evidence base now for um, that one milligram per litre of nitrogen um, mm. for that bottom line. Mm. Again I think that the pressure is coming from largely the dairy industry in New Zealand. So the dairy industry is obviously a big source of nitrogen, particularly through cow urine um, and, and so there has been a big push from um, the dairy sector 
to undermine the science. It's a little bit, um, I have to say, it's a little bit tobacco-y science situation. And is Palmer where, a bit beholden to that, do you think, given that he hasn't moved? Uh, I think that they struggled during the last government um, because the, the, they were they didn't have the strength and numbers that they do now and that they were a bit more tentative about what they might do with the freshwater reform than they, than they could have been given the public sentiment around freshwater reform. And I think that now is the time that they just need to put in that really sensible bottom line. We know earlier in the week we heard about um, the, the link with human health issues. This is, a, this is about putting in place something that is, that is going to help us in the long term. It's not going to be overnight change, but it's but, about making sure that we're safe and secure in the long term. But politically, I mean, in that interview, Parker pushed back and said against the idea that he's not moving fast enough. Mm. He believes that he is, Jenna. I mean, but are they? I mean, are they seen to be? Well, he'll, he'll argue that he is moving yeah. fast enough. Dairy farmers will argue that he's moving way too fast. Yeah. Um, but clean water is not something that, that, as you said, will happen overnight. It's not something that you can physically see happening like you can see a road being built or houses being built. Um, it's not yeah. happening either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just to go back to what we were saying, what I was trying to do before, which is to differentiate between farmers and industry voices. Those right. are two quite different things. And a lot of dairy farmers, they are ready to move. They mm. want to change. They want to diversify their farm systems. They maybe want to get out of not being just dairy farmers, but move into some other spaces. Mm. A lot of dairy farmers are already reducing their cow numbers. They're reducing their nitrogen use. But the, oh, but the industry seems to me to be they're supporting that intensive model, and it largely seems to me to be pushed by this um, an old school idea about production above all else. Right. So, are they defending the farmers, or are they defending the people who make money off the farmers producing a lot? Well, okay, let's move on to another one. Uh, recycling. Hey, uh, um, Jenna, this is a favourite one of yours. How, how good? How good is the current recycling system? Because the, the government's saying that they're going to make a uniform curbside recycling. You'd be on board with that. I would love uniform curbside recycling. Um, <laughs> I, I find the I find our recycling system so confusing. I think if the government wants to make recycling easy, it needs to be a making those uniform rules so that you don't have to learn them every time you move into a new city, um, and b um, invest in the infrastructure those sorting machines so that, you know, I, I don't have... No-one has to learn how to do it. If You, you can't <laughs> rely on the public to, to implement your ideas. Like, get in behind it and put some money behind it to, to make it happen. Do you agree, Ben? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, recycling is sort of a rot or urban <laughs> myth up there with... Duty-free shopping. Here we go. Uh, or, no, in, in, in the sense that, you know, a lot of what we think we're recycling doesn't get recycled. Yeah. You know, it, it, it gets shipped overseas, and that doesn't get recycled either because mm. of the capacity constraints there. And so a lot of it just goes into landfills or gets burned. Mm. Um, so it is a much wider infrastructure issue. Um, you know, mm. a bare minimum is that we have the processes in place that, you know, you don't have to learn a whole new dialect. And I'm 40-something years old. I still don't know which numbers of plastics can be recycled. Yeah. Not no, no, many people do. I do agree with with Ben on this, is that it's a, it's actually a bigger issue. And the plastics people that I spoke to before coming on the show, mm. they were saying, you know, we're, we're excited about, you know, things, the single-use being phased out, mm. but actually there's just a much bigger yeah. issue of how yeah. much we're producing, how often we're using single-use plastics, and the fact that, as Ben says, that a lot of those things just, even if they go in the right yep. recycling bin, they won't be recycled. All right. um, let's move on to Paul Hunt, the Human Rights mm. Commissioner, and that um, elucidating interview that he gave. Um, ben, was it right or wrong to give $200 of taxpayer money as a koha to the mongrel mob? 
Look, the, the koha aspect of it gets a bit overly emotive um, and it becomes a bit of a target for people like ACT, like National, who want to make take sort of cheap shots. The koha is beside the point. The, the issue is that Paul Hunt is essentially what the Soviets used to call a useful idiot, who <laughs> will turn up to these gang events, legitimise them, say, you know, the real problem here is that we're stigmatising gangs, not the real problem is gangs are involved in crime at all levels, from organised to very disorganised, like, you know, group beatings, like random stabbings, like killing so, people in the streets, like we've mm. seen... You know, in news report after news report in recent months, you know, shootings in the regions. Um, and Paul Hunt says, well, I'm not naive. He sounds pretty naive. In his statement defending the Koha, he said, well, this is part of our journey towards being a Tatidity-based organisation. The mongrel mob never signed the treaty. It's a complete <laughs> misrepresentation of the Crown's duties as a treaty partner to put gang leaders on the same level as the great iwi leaders in this country who are doing amazing things for their communities and their people. Yeah, I think that it's, I, I, I agree with Ben in the, in the sense that I think that the koha thing is not the issue. issue. That's obviously a very convenient thing for ACT and, and National who have said outright now that they want to get rid of the um, Human Rights Commission claiming that it's a, it's a left-wing organisation and so there's, a, there's obviously it obviously seems like there's a there's a bigger um, agenda at play here. I think we we do have to work through. You know, it's a the Human Rights Commission is a Crown agency. It's going to have to work through what it is to be a Tatiti partner, um, as we all are. Yep. Um, and those things are they are. They're, they're complex, but they're still worth, very worthwhile to work through. And I think that the koha thing is, is really just a cheap shot. We want to hear more on this, and, and we will on our extended Sunday panel. Jenna, I'm interested in your views on the politics um, of National and Act's view on the Human Rights Commission. So we'll come back to that um, on Sunday in our extended panel. Thank you very much all for joining us. All right, stay with us. We're back after the break. Welcome back to The Pitch, where we give MPs five minutes to sell you their ideas. He's demanding the gangs give up their guns, but he's also gunning for Kelvin Davis's job as Corrections Minister. Finn Hogan sat down with National's Simeon Brown and started by asking him his number one priority. The number one thing which needs to be dealt with in the corrections portfolio at the moment is the unacceptable increase in violence that we've seen against corrections officers in the last three years under Kelvin Davis's watch. There's been a 92% increase in violence against our corrections officers and assaults. Uh, it's completely unacceptable, and so I've got an action plan that I would like to see um, immediately put in place to address that violence. Okay, but the most severe assaults, that rate has actually remained steady, right? A lot of that increase is being driven by non-serious or non-injury assaults. Every assault, every assault against corrections officers is unacceptable, and non-serious can actually still mean quite serious, including stitches, hospital stays, um, a whole range of quite serious um, uh, things which happen to corrections officers. Um, and so it has to be addressed. OK, but Calvin Davis has his own five-point plan, and there is actually quite a lot of broad agreement between your two plans. Could you just point to most specifically what differentiates yours from his? Well, I think there needs to be accountability uh, and there needs to be uh, harsher penalties for those who do um, commit uh, assaults against our corrections officers. But specifically, what would that look like? Well, it means that there should be a, a, a penalty, an increased penalty. What kind of penalty? Well, we, what we proposed in that legislation was that if someone assaults a corrections officer, they should have a, 
an additional penalty on beyond what they're currently serving. At the moment, those additional penalties could actually be alongside their existing sentences that they're serving. Aren't you concerned about that ballooning our already very high prison population? We've got the fifth highest rate of incarceration in the OECD already. Well, there needs to be a very clear deterrent and a clear message that assaults against corrections officers is unacceptable. And so actually, if you do the time, you should do the crime. That's what National stands for. Do the time, do the crime? Do the crime, do the time. <laughs> But to what extent are you actually concerned about lowering the prison population in New Zealand? Because these are very punitive measures. Oh look, we're going to scrap the um, target to reduce the 30% uh, the reduction in prison population that Calvin Davis has got. That's actually the only target that Calvin Davis has in corrections. Um, and that's something which I think, you know, yes, we might want to see a, a reduction in the prison population, but the way you go about achieving that is actually you want to see less crime taking place in the community. One of the more extreme measures you've suggested is introducing tasers to prisons, but isn't that just meeting violence with more violence? No, it's about providing an additional tactical option to corrections officers um, who are having to deal with these very difficult situations where violence is being taking place. Um, I'm not suggesting that they should be, you know, strapped to their belts and saying it should be um, behind lock and key. Um, as an extra tactical option which can be made available. It's in Western Australia, it's in Tasmania. Um, I'm saying let's have a trial of that in New Zealand. Then There's a lot of reasons not to do that, right? There, there could be extreme health complications, they could be turned on staff. They're only one use, so they wouldn't be effective against a group. And as you say, if they're under lock and key, they can't be accessed It's an quickly. additional. It's an additional tactical option. I'm, saying, I'm suggesting there should be a trial of tasers in the prisons. That, as I said, it happens in Western Australia, it happens in Tasmania. What evidence do you see out of Australia showing that it actually lowers rates of violence? Well, what we see in Australia is it's an additional tactical option. So it's about providing that as a deterrent, but also something to which... So is there any evidence that you could point to that shows it does actually lower rates of violence? Well, I think that's something which the Australian um, states do have. But what we are saying is let's have a trial in New Zealand I'm not saying this is something which we would permanently put in place or in every single prison. What's wrong with politicians or the Human Rights Commissioner meeting with the mongrel mob or with gang leaders if they think there is a good faith effort to engage on issues? The message it sends to New Zealand is that actually um, we, th we see you as, as a valuable members of community. Well, I'm sorry, they should firstly stop selling their meth hand back their guns and stop perpetrating the violence on our streets. John Key was fine with it when Peter Sharples met with 16 gang leaders. What's different Look, now? Look, it's not okay to sit down with, with gang members and have cups of tea. But that, what's, that's well, my what's view. different now? John Key said... Well, what we have seen is a 50% increase in gang membership in the last three years. We've had a massive increase in gang membership in the so last... So it's only because there's more gang members now. So well, it was fine when John well, Key I'm not, said it was I'm not, okay I'm not saying members. it was fine then. What I'm saying is we, we are... Oh, so seeing, John Key was wrong to say that. What I'm saying is we've seen a massive increase in gang membership and violence in the last few years. The point here is that National has previously drawn a distinction between engagement and endorsement. Are you saying that distinction's gone now? Absolutely. With a completely black and white view like that, though, aren't you blocking off one potential area of constructive engagement? I don't, think, I don't see how you can have a constructive engagement with an organisation which continues to perpetrate violence, peddle meth and cause misery in our community. You've received death threats from the moment before. Are you afraid that suggesting measures like this, these more punitive approaches, are just going to invite more of the same? Look, I think what we have seen is, you know, in terms of those death threats, this thing is, um, you know, unacceptable. And I don't think any New Zealander should um, have to live in, in fear. Are you living in fear? My biggest fear is for my family. Um, but I, I also fear for all New Zealanders. And it's something which needs to be taken seriously. Finally, what would you say to someone that has completely lost faith in the National Party brand? Look, I think the National Party um, has, is focused on the issues which matter to New Zealanders and new ideas to take New Zealand forward. Um, that's not an easy task, but it's a task that we're up to and that we're committed to fighting for. Finn Hogan there with Simeon Brown. And that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. Namahi nui, and we will see you again next weekend.
This program was made with the assistance of the New Zealand On Air Platinum Fund.